I can tell you that knowing the Afghans that I was able to help, the only reason they were getting help out of Afghanistan wasn't necessarily because of the service that they'd given over years, but it was because they had in their cell phone just the right connections. It shouldn't come down to who you have in your cell phone's contact list as whether or not you and your family are gonna live or die. That's decorated veteran and best-selling author Elliot Ackerman recalling the desperate race to evacuate Afghans amidst the United States' chaotic withdrawal last summer. I'm Margaret Hoover. This is the Firing Line Podcast. I spoke to Ackerman days before the 21st anniversary of the 9-11 attacks and just over a year after the United States pulled the last of its troops from Afghanistan. Ackerman joined the Marine Corps in 2002 and served five tours of duty in Afghanistan and Iraq, receiving a Purple Heart, a Silver Star, and the Bronze Star for Valor. He went on to work in CIA special operations before becoming a journalist and an author. The war is something I've lived with since I was 21 years old. His latest book, The Fifth Act, America's End in Afghanistan, reflects on both his service during the War on Terror and his role in the civilian effort to evacuate Afghans. Why did it fall on you and other concerned citizens, veterans, aid workers? Because there was no plan in place for a large-scale evacuation of our Afghan allies. Just because you don't predict it doesn't mean you shouldn't be smart enough to plan for it. We talked about the strategic failures that spanned four administrations, the future of Afghanistan under a repressive Taliban regime, and what might have been done differently. Would it be worth having 10,000, 7,500 U.S. troops in Afghanistan? I think it absolutely would. I think that is a far better strategic position for the United States than the current one in which Afghanistan is again a black hole. And Ackerman delivered a chilling warning about the consequences of America's growing domestic political dysfunction. If the United States just sort of throws up its arms and decides to look inward, we will wake up to a very, very different world, a world that does not share our values and in which we are a more marginal player, if not possibly a fatally marginal player. Elliot Ackerman, welcome to Firing Line. Thank you for having me. This weekend marks the 21st anniversary of the September 11th attacks against our nation. You joined the Marine Corps the year after those attacks. You served five tours of duty in Afghanistan and Iraq, receiving a Purple Heart, a Silver Star, and the Bronze Star for Valor. You later worked in CIA Special Operations before you became a journalist and an author. What is the single most important thing you think Americans ought to know about your generation of Americans who served in these wars? I think unlike other wars that the United States has fought, these wars were not generationally defining events. So my parents' generation was the Vietnam generation. They call themselves the Vietnam generation. It defined their generation. The greatest generation was defined by the Second World War. You know, the First World War had a lost generation. When I look at my own generation and my experience in these wars, you know, I've never felt as though I was part of a lost generation, per se. I actually think that would be nice. I felt more as though those of us who fought these wars were the lost part of our generation. And it was a unique experience. And so the question is, well, how come we fought the wars these ways? How come they didn't 
generationally define us as a nation. And I would say that goes back to the way the wars were constructed. You know, every war the United States has fought all the way back to the revolution has needed a construct to sustain it. And to sustain it, I mean broadly speaking in two terms, blood and treasure. Who's gonna fight it? How are you gonna pay for it? So for instance, if we look at the American Civil War, that was a war where we saw the first ever income tax was put in place in the United States to pay for that war, as well as the first ever draft. If we look at the Second World War, that was a war where the construct was a national mobilization as well as war bond drives to fund the war. You know, Vietnam, very unpopular draft that ultimately leads to an anti-war movement that ends the war. When September 11th happened 21 years ago, and the United States knew that it was going to once again go to war, we also needed to figure out, okay, what is the construct that is going to sustain this war? And the way we constructed the war on terror was the blood came from our all-volunteer military, and the treasure came from deficit spending in so much as there was never a war tax for these wars. They were put in our national credit card. And if you look at our national deficit right now, about a quarter to a third of it is funding to the war on terror. So when we look at that construct where we have an all-volunteer military that sustains our war and we fund it through deficit spending, the result becomes that the American people, by and large, are anesthetized to the cost of these wars. And the result is a 20-year war that's fought by a slim segment of the American population, and what we're left with is also a very wide civil-military divide that exists in America today. You talk about a construct to sustain the war, and I wonder about a construct to sustain public opinion in support of the war, because the political leadership at the time of 9-11, to the extent that there was a political construct for the public, it was go to the mall, return to normal life, don't let the terrorists win. And I wonder if that political narrative, while well-meaning and well-intentioned in the immediacy of the aftermath of the attacks of 9-11, served the public in some way, it undermined the long-term mission of the war on terror. Well, I agree with that. And I think that you know, what we see is there are second and third order consequences for fighting a war this way. So in the immediate wake of 9-11, where we know that we're going to war again, the, the major war that had preceded it was Vietnam. And one of the lessons the political class took from Vietnam is that dra a draft is extremely unpopular. And so we had this all-volunteer military that we had built that was, that was and remains very competent and capable. So we can rely on our all-volunteer military to fight this war. And with regards to where we were as a nation, economically speaking, you know, the last year the United States passed a balanced budget was 2001. That's not a coincidence. So we had the ability to put this into our deficit and not saddle Americans with a war tax. But what becomes the unintended consequence of, again, what I call this anesthetization of the American people is that we wind up with an extremely long war because as it goes on, it just recedes out of our national consciousness. So for instance, in 2018, before the midterm elections, this is also before President Trump had began negotiating with the Taliban, putting kind of Afghanistan back into the national conversation, the polling firm Rasmussen, they put a poll into the field asking Americans the issues they cared about heading into the midterms. And when they asked about the war in Afghanistan, 42% of Americans, it wasn't that the war wasn't a priority for them, 42% of Americans couldn't even say if the war was still going on. 
They just, they didn't even know at that point. And for a democracy, that's very dangerous, particularly as the issues of war and peace should be the ones that we consider the most gravely. Let's go back to a year ago. When the United States pulled our troops from Afghanistan, you worked to help evacuate dozens of Afghans, including the all-girls robotics team, the family of your interpreter, and many others who aided the United States in two decades of war. Uh, you describe your role in the civilian-led effort in your new book, The Fifth Act, America's End in Afghanistan. Why did it fall on you and other concerned citizens, veterans, aid workers, the retired chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, to evacuate Afghans who had been our allies? Because there was no plan in place for a large-scale evacuation of our Afghan allies. You know, and that is a, a huge mistake. There's plenty of blame that can go around for the end game in Afghanistan. I mean, this is a war that was fought across four presidencies, Republican and Democrat. But the blame for there not being a contingency plan for a massive evacuation of Afghanistan does fall on the Biden administration. Um, do I understand why an evacuation wasn't carried out before our withdrawal date in August? I do. And I think the rationale the Biden administration had was between April of 2021, when the announcement to withdraw occurred and September 11th, 2021, when you know the last US troops were originally supposed to be out of Afghanistan, the Biden administration didn't begin evacuating our Afghan allies because they were concerned that that would be a vote of no confidence in the Afghan government and would then precipitate that government's collapse. That's an understandable position, but that is a strategy and a position that relies completely on there being what's called the decent interval. That's a term going back to the Vietnam War, meaning the interval of time between the US withdrawal and whatever the end game is in the country. And so the Biden administration bet that there would be some interval of time between the last US troop leaving Afghanistan and the end game between the Afghan government and the Taliban. Whether that decent interval was two years, a year, six months, there would be some amount of time. When there was no decent interval and Afghanistan collapsed on our watch there was no contingency plan in place to get our Afghan allies out. And that's why you wound up seeing, you know, what many have called this digital Dunkirk, uh, crowdsourced effort to get people out of the airport and all the chaotic scenes pretty much every American saw in the news that summer. Intelligence agencies, including the CIA, all thought it would take months or longer for the Taliban to take over, for that decent interval to occur. Those predictions were varied, but none of them predicted that the Afghan government would fall while the United States was still there. So was that an intelligence failure? Sure. I mean, you know, it's an intelligence failure anytime you know, our intel agencies don't predict something with complete precision. I, I wouldn't pin it all on the intelligence services. I think anyone could look at the situation in Afghanistan and, you know, understand the variables that were at play. So if you're sitting there and you work in the Biden administration, you know, we're gonna hope that we can get all of our people out and there will be this decent interval. But the obvious question is, okay guys, well, what happens if there isn't a decent interval? Should we maybe have a contingency plan for that? And the fact of the matter that there was None wasn't, of the intelligence agencies nor the political entities predicted there would be no decent interval. Just because you don't predict it doesn't mean you shouldn't be smart enough to plan for it. I mean, we can go back to through the war on terror. Like for instance, look at the US invasion of Iraq. I'm only going back to this because this is another time when there was no contingency plan. The strategic thinking was we are going to invade Iraq and be greeted as liberators. And that's great if it happens, it's optimistic thinking, 
But then when there was an insurgency, what became obvious was that there had been no deep contingency planning for the worst case scenario. So when you're, when you're a policymaker and you're making these decisions, it's incumbent on anyone who sits in these positions to be always planning for the worst case scenario. Have we learned nothing? Well, I don't think we've necessarily learned to have the discipline to always be planning for the worst case scenario. And we didn't do it last summer. I want to play a clip for you, audio message from a man that you helped named Aziz. We'll call him Aziz. You call him Aziz. He worked in the U.S. Embassy and his brother had already been killed by the Taliban when he reached out to you for help. Listen to this. Is there any possibility to pick up, uh, pick up from uh, Serena Hotel? Because we are carrying kids and also we have ladies. We don't want to uh, get caught with, uh, by Taliban because they're looking everywhere, uh, just place by place, home by home, uh, street by street looking for us. And we don't want to be recognized by them. I can get to the airport, but I can come uh, close or near to the airport. Uh, if it's possible uh, uh, to pick up, pick us up, it would be good. Because for now, uh, all the families in a very bad condition. They are so scared. You were Aziz's family's first and last hope. He eventually made it with his family to Qatar, and now he's living in California. How is he doing? Well, you know, he's trying to build a life like the tens of thousands of Afghans who we did manage to get out. And I think, you know, as a nation right now, it's critically important as we're sitting here one year later, remembering the anniversary of the fall of Kabul and also the 21st anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, that this not be a moment where we collectively say, okay, and now it's time to turn the page. Um, there is still a lot of work to be done and still uh, it's incredibly important that we keep faith with our Afghan allies who we brought here. So for instance, Aziz and uh, tens of thousands of other Afghans who managed to make it to the United States, their status right now is they are currently on humanitarian parole. So uh, it's very difficult for them to work. They need their immigration status to be adjusted. So there is legislation that's sort of slowly working its way through Congress right now, the Afghan Adjustment Act, that would allow the Afghans we brought to this country to get green cards and to get on their pathway towards citizenship. But that has yet to pass through the Congress, and it's critically important. So Aziz and others are living in this state where they don't know their status. They don't know if in a year or two they could potentially be deported out of the United States. And we, we owe it to them to adjust their status and make sure that they can stay here and make their lives here. What happens to the 76,000 Afghans living inside the United States who are here on that humanitarian parole if the Afghan Adjustment Act isn't passed? Well, they and their families will be facing deportation. And I think it's important, you know, for for all of us, for us as a country to recognize, like many of these these individuals, like they're not just Afghan heroes who fought for their country. They, they're American heroes. These are people who fought alongside us, ostensibly for values that we purport to represent in the world. These are people who will be a enormous credit to this country. So, you know, it's not just a humanitarian reason to adjust their status. It's actually in our national interest to adjust their status. These are people who are going to make a, a massive contribution to the United States. Um, and uh, the Afghan Adjustment Act is something I think all Americans should, should be paying attention to. It's important for our country. You referenced that there is an attitude amongst Americans a year later. 
that it's time to turn the page and move on from Afghanistan. But you also make the case that the Afghan Adjustment Act is a moral imperative that we have to our Afghan allies and friends. How do you make the case to somebody who just doesn't get it, who is part of that 95% of America that was at the mall for the last 20 years and not understanding and connected to the war that you were fighting and your colleagues were fighting? How do you make the case to people who don't understand that we, what we owe to our Afghan allies? Well, I don't believe that, you know, the, the Americans who went to the mall are in some ways some type of uh, maliciously, malicious group of citizens who are cold-hearted in some way. I, I actually, you know, I believe, I think most Americans, like, we are generally a warm-hearted people. We are a nation of immigrants. Every family has their story of how they came here. I think America went to the mall because the war was just set up in such a way where there was no incentive for them to be involved. And I think it's important as we look forward to how we might fight future wars to recognize that that's a cost of our all-volunteer military and financing the wars that we, we did. But I think that with regards to the Afghans who've come here, most Americans have seen this story now. They are paying, they have been paying attention again to Afghanistan. Um, and we've seen that last year of how, how central um, this was in the news. And I think most Americans too feel as though the, the country and the way the pullout was handled was antithetical to our values. What they saw happening at the airport in Kabul, they didn't like because it wasn't who we were. Um, but by the time they were paying attention, it probably felt like there was nothing that they could do, that this was already happening, it was a fait accompli, we had to get out this way, um, and we can debate whether or not there were alternatives. But the one thing that we can't debate is we have an opportunity right now to do right by the people who, who we brought here. And there's no good reason why we shouldn't do right by them. Many of the individuals that you write about in the Fifth Act were people who had some connection or relationship with individuals like you who had been in Afghanistan. Um, and they were able to get out, but there are many others who weren't able to get out. Do you view our treatment of our Afghan allies and the Afghans who were left behind as a moral indictment on our country? Well, I think it is a moral indictment on us. And that I think it's when I think that it's one that will be felt uh, for, for years to come. You know, the world watched and saw how we left and there's a lot of work we need to do to, to repair that. On an individual level, I can tell you that knowing the Afghans that I was able to help, the only reason they were getting help out of Afghanistan wasn't necessarily because of the service that they'd given over years, uh, but it was because they had in their cell phone just the right connections, the ability to call the correct people to get them and their family on a list so that they could go get out. So as this evacuation is taking place and, and my colleagues and I are making lists, almost like a modern day Schindler's list, you're putting people's names on these lists and you know whether or not they're on the list or off the list means whether or not they're gonna live or die. And you know the only reason they're getting on that list is because they've got your phone number in their phone. It leads to the obvious conclusion that there are so many others who don't have that phone number. They have nobody to call, no one's gonna help them. And that's a moral indictment on us as a country because that, those aren't our values. You know, it shouldn't, shouldn't come down to who you have in your cell phone's contact list is whether or not you and your family are gonna live or die or have to spend the next however many years living under the yoke of the Taliban. You write in your book about how your journey with Aziz from your perspective had been one of um, you know, 
many close calls and moments of almost getting there and then falling short. So that in that final days when he was manifested once again for his evacuation from Mazar-e Sharif, it was very late at night, you went to bed um, and you woke up the next morning to a video that showed that he had made it out. Emotionally, how was that process for you over the year of trying to help Afghans evacuate? And what kind of a toll did it take on people like you who were voluntarily offering your service to help them and save their lives? It sort of operates on a, a lot of levels. One of the things about these wars is they've gone on for, for 20 years. Um, so I, the last time I left Afghanistan was in 2011 after eight years of, of fighting in the war there and the war in Iraq. And I sort of had to, I knew I wanted to leave and I knew that I was walking away from a war that was still going on and that was candidly still killing my friends. I have a number of friends who were killed after I left and it's difficult to know, well, you know, maybe I could have been there or, you know, and, and, and I'm bringing this up because that's not unique. I think almost every veteran who's left the wars, because the war went on so long, we've had to uh, declare a separate peace because our country didn't declare peace. So to step away, we had to declare peace within ourselves. And some of those separate pieces that were negotiated inside each of our consciences were more enduring than others. And I think, oh, I know how the war ended, which was so visceral, so acute, where you're getting phone calls from dozens, hundreds of people asking for help because someone gave them your phone number. And how do you tell someone who's asking your help, how do you not answer that call? That puts a cost on you too. And I, so I would say in myself and in many of my friends who are vets, it kind of caused some of the pieces we had negotiated within ourselves to unravel a little bit. Um, specific to me, you know, the war is something I've lived with since I was 21 years old, I'm 42. So I have known it and had an intimate relationship with it longer than I've known my wife, longer than I've known my children. And they actually only knew me after the war. And so for them, and I write about this in the book, and I think it was important to show the juxtaposition between my life after the war and my life in the war, it gave them a window into what the war might've been like uh, for me. And so in our family, uh, the events of last summer cast a long shadow. And I know that for, for many veterans, it, it brought the war home all over again, and I and also brought a sense of, you know, real, real upset that, you know, if we felt like we were fighting the war on our own before, um, we certainly, I think, many of us felt like we were also ending it on our own because the the at least the, the administration was walking away, and we were left to try to manage these relationships and help these people through a, you know, without without much support because there was no process. There are thousands of Afghans, reportedly 6,500 at least, who were evacuated from Afghanistan but are still stuck in processing centers in the UAE and Qatar. What responsibility does the U.S. have to these refugees and what will happen to them? Well, we have a responsibility to expedite the special immigrant visa process and get them to the United States. And you know, this comes to the point, you know, this didn't end when the last U.S. service member left Afghanistan. Our moral obligations didn't end. And so we already have uh, a whole host of our Afghan allies who couldn't get to the United States but are scattered around the world, you know, in countries that are not particularly sympathetic to their plight. And they also face deportation, potentially back to Afghanistan. So we have an obligation to promptly expedite their immigration 
applications into the United States, and I hope we I hope we make good on that. And I'm I'm right now, you know, I am in contact with former colleagues of mine, Afghan soldiers I've fought alongside who didn't get to the United States, who are sitting outside the U.S. trying right now to get in, and it's difficult. A July report from Amnesty International detailed the state of human rights inside Afghanistan a year into the Taliban's rule after the United States left. Discriminatory policies are preventing women from working and girls from going to school. One Afghan woman said that women there are being sentenced to, quote, death in slow motion. Are you in contact with men and women who are still on the ground in Afghanistan? And what are the conditions in Afghanistan now? I'm still in contact uh, with a few who are still in Afghanistan and are trying to get out. Uh, Most of them are in hiding um, and are very afraid. And candidly, the prospects for them getting out are extremely slim. Um, We don't have any type of presence in Afghanistan anymore. I think when it comes particularly to to the plight of women in Afghanistan, 20 years is a long time to fight a war. And we've seen with Afghanistan, the war began after September 11th, and it was about bringing the perpetrators of those attacks, Al-Qaeda and bin Laden, to justice. But it began to veer into a nation-building effort in Afghanistan that went on for many years. And at any point in our Afghan odyssey, it was often very difficult to narrow down, okay, what is this war about? And what are the conditions that would dictate us winning it? Um, I talked a little bit about my, my children. They've asked me a few times, like, Dad, what was the war in Afghanistan about? And the two things I could sort of say to them makes, made sense, you know, particularly my daughter was, well, we were attacked on 9-11 and we had to go get the people who did that. That makes sense to a child who usually has a pretty good sense of logic. You know, and we're fighting there so girls like you can go to school. And they understand that. And we made a generation's worth of promises to Afghan women. And we have now stepped away from those promises. And that is something that lingers on our conscience. And I think we're going to have to figure out how to make that right as a country. I don't necessarily know how we're going to do it, but it's definitely something that weighs on our national conscience. After you wrote your book, the United States killed al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri in Kabul, Afghanistan's capital. He was not hiding in the mountains. He was not in a neighboring country. Was his killing in Kabul an indication that we're back to square one? That Afghanistan is once again a safe haven for terrorists who want to plot against the United States? His killing is, is interesting in so many ways because of the different narratives that were trotted out after he was killed. So the administration hailed his killing as being proof that their over-the-horizon anti-terrorism capability works, that we were able to kill the leader of al-Qaeda without having any U.S. troops in Afghanistan. Now, if we kind of step back from those statements a little bit, what's also, though, I think would be proof of a strategic failure was because we had also negotiated with the Taliban and felt as though we had had assurances from the Taliban, or at least told there were these assurances, that they'd learned their lesson and they would no longer ally themselves with al-Qaeda. So that was proven false. But the one thing, if we look at the 20-year American odyssey in Afghanistan and our fight against al-Qaeda is, you know, we've never lacked an ability to kill terrorists. We've actually gotten very, very good at it. Um, but that's a tactical capability. That's not a strategy. It's not a strategy for combating Islamic radicalism. It's not a strategy that's necessarily going to keep America safe. The challenge we've always had is we've never been able to connect our our tactical capability of being able to kill terrorists with an overarching strategy that gets rid of the threat of terrorism around the world. 
And so the fact that we killed Zawahiri brings us no way closer to having that type of strategic coherence we need so that we can focus on other issues. But given that the impetus for going to Afghanistan in the first place was to prevent Afghanistan from becoming a safe haven for al-Qaeda and others to plot attacks against the United States. And very recently, the leader of al-Qaeda was found in Afghanistan. Was it all for naught? Well, I think it, I think it, you know, that question of was it all for naught is a, to me, a broader question, but it certainly shows that Afghanistan is again a safe haven for terrorists because the head of al-Qaeda is in Afghanistan. So that's a strategic fail there. You know, then the question of whether Afghanistan is all for naught to me is sort of a more fraught question because, it, because again, the war wasn't only about killing members of al-Qaeda, it became about all of these other things. Let's just go back to 2020. The Trump administration had signed a deal. I don't, I don't want to armchair general this too much, but I do think it's worth reflecting on the decisions that the Biden administration made in order to see if there are lessons learned. Sure. Um, in the Doha agreement, which the Trump administration had negotiated with the Taliban, the U.S. pledged a full withdrawal, and the Taliban promised the country wouldn't become a safe haven for terrorists. The Biden administration's position all along was that Trump left him no alternatives to an abrupt exit. I know you have been critical of both the Trump administration and the Biden administration, but do you believe that Biden needed to continue the policies set by the Trump administration, which led to such an abrupt and, frankly, disastrous withdrawal? No. And to insinuate that President Biden had absolutely no alternative but to, argue, to honor the Doha agreement, which was a terrible agreement, is, is I mean, frankly, is, is preposterous. Um, and I would, extremely disingenuous. So he's the president of the United States. And he showed across his administration uh, an ability and a willingness to unwind a host of policies that, that President Trump had adopted. Um, the fact of the matter is the Biden administration continued the Trump policies. And they owned those policies. They had the ability to renegotiate with the Taliban. They had the ability to change troop levels if they felt that was needed. They had an ability to do a whole host of things. But Joe Biden and President Trump are aligned on Afghanistan. They were aligned in their policies. Um, and I wish the president would just own that. You have said that you are in favor of maintaining some troop presence in Afghanistan. Would maintaining 2,500 troops there have made the difference? I think, you know, if, when we look at what was the state of play before President Trump started unilaterally negotiating with the Taliban, and it's important to note that, too, one of the great strategic mistakes of the Trump administration was these unilateral no negotiations with the Taliban because it completely undermined the legitimacy of the Afghan government. And oh, by the way, you only need to crack a history book to notice that in Vietnam, we did the exact same thing in 1973 with the Paris Peace Accords, and it's one of the things that precipitated the disaster in Vietnam. So, but... President Trump's, before President Trump decided to unilaterally negotiate with the Taliban, U.S. forces had largely withdrawn from Afghanistan. At the height of the surge, when I was fighting them, there were 150,000 U.S. troops in Afghanistan. Before the negotiations, there were 15,000. The reason there could be 15,000 there was because the Afghan army was able to begin waging the war on its own. Had it taken longer than we would have liked? Sure. But the reality is, is that differential, that 135,000 troop differential was a capability that the Afghans had picked up on their own. 
So would it be worth having 10,000, 7,500 U.S. troops in Afghanistan? I think it absolutely would. Now, what was the reason that we were trying to you know, pull these troops out? Ostensibly, the reason for the complete withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan is to end the war. Okay, well, it begs this question, well, what does it mean to end the war? So right now in Iraq, in Syria, in the Horn of Africa, you know, these are all places where we have U.S. troops deployed, and those troops are drawing what's called imminent danger pay. They're, in effect, at war. So if you look at the history of American war making all the way back to the Second World War, you know, we didn't bring all the troops home at the end of the Second World War. You know, they stayed in Europe. We didn't bring them all home after the Korean War. We still have troops on the Korean Peninsula. Indeed, the only time where we bring all the troops home is when we lose the war. So it kind of begs this question of why did those troop numbers have to come to zero? And is there a universe in which we would have a de minimis U.S. troop presence taking, by the way, zero to no casualties as they were in the last years of the war, and we would still retain a foothold in Afghanistan, and Afghanistan would be a country that wasn't ruled by the Taliban. I think that is a far better strategic position for the United States than the current one in which Afghanistan is again a black hole, and the leader of al-Qaeda has been able to set up shop there. So would that have been winning the war in Afghanistan? I think it would have been, let me just wait, I think it would have been a better outcome. So for instance, that's more akin to the outcome that we have in Iraq. I wouldn't, ar I wouldn't argue that we have won the, we won the war in Iraq, but I would also wouldn't go so far as to say that we lost it. So I would say that's not necessarily winning the war in Afghanistan, but it's not losing the war. And I would rather not lose the war than flat out lose it the way that we did. So in your estimation, 10,000 troops would have been sufficient? Yeah, thereabouts. This week, more than a dozen retired secretaries of defense and chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, including two of Trump's former defense secretaries, Jim Mattis and Mark Esper, signed a letter stating that we are, quote, in an exceptionally challenging civil military environment. They cite the first election in over a century when the peaceful transfer of political power was disrupted and in doubt. And they also warn that it could get worse before it gets better. How much of a danger does this pose for 2024 and beyond? I think this poses a massive danger. One of the costs of the war on terror has been a significant civil military divide in so much as the majority of Americans, they don't necessarily speak with fluency the language of the US military. They don't understand the difference when a bunch of retired generals and retired secretaries of defense speak out versus active duty members. Um, you know, there is also as we go from a contested election to contested election, it is extremely dangerous for us to sort of navigate our way through this as a nation. And so we've seen the types of political violence in our street that have necessitated uh, a significant military response uh, to include active duty troops, National Guard troops. And if that type of political violence occurs around an election, by default, you are asking the US military to participate in American domestic politics. And that gets very slippery very quickly. You know, the US military is not a monolith. Um, it's composed of citizens who all have their political biases as they should. Um, they all vote one way or another, but there's a culture in the US military, which is that you know, we don't speak about our politics. We don't speak about it openly. Um, there's a, a culture of what I would call omerta, but that culture can change, and we have seen the politicization of every single U.S. institution 
And really the last one left that has not been overtly politicized is the U.S. military. But what happens if that occurs? And I think right now we're seeing from the left and the right, both sides very much trying to politicize the U.S. military for their own benefit. And as citizens, we should be extremely concerned about that because people in uniform, if pushed hard enough around the outcome of election, they might choose, particularly a presidential election, because who the president is when you wear the uniform, you have a very different relationship with that person than if you don't wear a uniform. If you're civilian, the president is the leader of the United States. If you wear the uniform, the president is your commander in chief. And the legitimacy of all of your orders in uniform, those orders are only legitimate if the person at the very top of the chain of command, the commander in chief is legitimate. So if you begin calling into question the legitimacy of the president, you're calling into question the legitimacy of the orders every person wearing the uniform uh, is forced to obey. And some people might interpret that in the, with, who wear the uniform differently. Some might think their orders are legitimate. Some might think they're illegitimate. You're inviting that type of a crisis, not only around an election, but around the le very legitimacy of the U.S. military response to an election. You've warned, quote, when you couple a large standing military with extremely dysfunctional domestic politics, it is not good for democracy, and often democracy doesn't last long. And those are the exact conditions that exist in the United States right now. So how do we fix it? Well, first of all, you only need to crack open a history book, and you can see, I mean, from Caesar's Rome to Napoleon's France, when you couple a large standing military, particularly one where there's a civil military divide, with dysfunctional domestic politics, yes, democracy doesn't last long. Those are the conditions of the United States right now. Um, particularly as we have increasingly outsourced our military and they've become sort of a, a increase, a subcast of the United States. If you look at recruitment data, we can see that the U.S. military is increasingly recruited locally from specific states. Also, uh, there's a hereditary trend in the U.S. military. So increasingly we see it's a, it's a family business. And so we're seeing the atomization of American society in many, many sectors, but that's also influencing the military. So when I was watching the end of the war in Afghanistan, you know, I felt like I was watching sort of late empire behavior. This is the way an empire behaves at the end. Well, another late empire behavior is the outsourcing of military service to a specific portion of society. You know, for instance, probably the most famous example is Rome. One of the things that brought about the end of the Roman Empire was Romans began to outsource military service to the people who lived in the farthest reaches of the empire. Now, we're not outsourcing that service geographically, but we are outsourcing it to this smaller segment of our society. Uh, and that is very, very dangerous behavior for a democracy, and we should be paying attention to it. And I fear that we're not, because so many Americans don't have this fluency in military culture. In your book, The Fifth Act, you discuss the opportunity and cost of waging the war on terror and how it distracted us from the growing threats posed by China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran. President Biden gave remarks last summer, which cited one of his reasons for withdrawing from Afghanistan was the need to, quote, focus on shoring up America's core strengths to meet the strategic competition with China and other nations. Have you seen any indication in the last year that President Biden and the administration have successfully refocused its national security priorities? I wholeheartedly agree with that statement that the United States needs to focus uh, on great power competition. I think that is a completely accurate uh, realignment re of our national security priorities. But the question becomes, 
is a complete U.S. pullout from Afghanistan and the debacle that follows, does that further our reposturing? And I would actually say no. It actually makes us much weaker in an arena of great power competition. So you can, you can drop a plumb line from the events of August 2021 and our pullout to the invasion of Ukraine in February of 2022. That summer, the entire world saw the way that we pulled out. You can be certain that you know, Vladimir Putin, as he was weighing a decision whether or not to invade Ukraine, was certainly trying to understand and consider what a NATO response would look like. And what he saw in Afghanistan was probably one of the darkest hours in NATO's history, which certainly contributes to his decision to invade Ukraine. Now, ironically, I would argue within a six-month period, we see sort of one of the brightest moments in the history of the alliance, which is the way it overperforms in Ukraine. But you can also, when we talk about Ukraine, you know, one of the reasons the invasion of Ukraine had such, a, such global resonance is because of China. And sort of as goes Ukraine, so goes Taiwan, potentially. So had, you know, had Putin just swept through Ukraine and had we seen some type of Chinese incursion in Taiwan, I mean, that would be truly frightening for the global world, world order. But as we consider an invasion of Taiwan today, one of the massive challenges we face as a nation is if that war were to ever come, and I hope it doesn't, that would be a war that the Chinese would be fighting in their backyards and we would be waging it from across the Pacific. Wouldn't it be nice if we had in Central Asia an allied nation with strategic air bases that shared a border, albeit a very small one, with China? Well, that's what we just gave up in Afghanistan. So this all connects and it all features into this game of great power politics. Against that backdrop of great power politics, make the case for why the United States would need to defend Taiwan in the case of a Chinese invasion, especially against this backdrop of a country that had a very difficult time sustaining public interest to defending Afghanistan, a country which had supported um, an entity which plotted attacks against our homeland. Well, this sort of comes back to like the foundational ideas of what, Amer what America is. And what type of a world do we want our children to inherit? And do we want it to be a world in which the authoritarian nations are on the march, in which America is seen as a, you know, a first-rate country that is sort of slid into a second-rate democracy that is incredibly dysfunctional, that no longer exerts influence on the world stage. Um, you know, there is a struggle going on uh, of, of very big ideas uh, of whether or not, you know, small L liberalism, you know, the Western democracies that have set the tone in the world for, you know, at least since the Second World War, should continue to, to lead. Um, and the battlefields of that war would be in places like Taiwan. We're seeing it in Ukraine today. And if the United States just sort of throws up its arms and decides to look inward, uh, you know, we will wake up to a very, very different world, uh, a world that does not share our values and in which we are a more marginal player, if not possibly a, a fatally marginal player. I want to play a clip for you from the original firing line with William F. Buckley Jr. and then Major H.R. McMaster in 1998. They were talking about his book, Dereliction of Duty and the Vietnam War. 
The subtitle of Major McMaster's book is uh, Lyndon Johnson, Robert McNamara, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and the Lies that Led to Vietnam. That's very tough language. And the most obvious question to lead off with is, why did every important person in Washington seemingly from 1964 to the end engage in, in lying? Typically what you hear about Vietnam and certainly what is contained in the historiography of that war is the interpretation that the war in Vietnam was inevitable and that it was brought on by a tidal wave of Cold War ideology. What this new evidence reveals in, in dramatic fashion is not only was the war not inevitable, but indeed that it was only made possible through these lies and deceptions. So you make a different argument about our failures in Afghanistan. Um, not that military brass or politicians were lying to Americans. All the information was out there. Americans just weren't paying attention. So what have you learned about sustaining public commitment to a long-term foreign conflict and engagement? When a healthy democracy goes to war, everyone has skin in the game. And if the, the conflict, the level of conflict doesn't, doesn't rise to a point where the nation feels this is something that is such a priority, we all need to have skin in the game, then we shouldn't go to war. The constructs of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, these terror wars fought by an all-volunteer military and sustained through deficit spending, have made it way too easy for us to casually go to war. And we should stop as a country right now and ask whether or not we want to continue waging wars in which our politicians are given a massively long leash because the war is in effect taken off the books and Americans don't feel it and they're not asked to have skin in the game. So I would tell any American who didn't fight in these wars, be very cautious of any politician who's trying to sell a war, but it's telling you, you don't need to have skin in the game because it's going to end the way Afghanistan did. Elliot Ackerman, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thanks for me. coming on Fire Thank you.